Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. One of the things we like to say in our country, in our culture, is that we are a free people. We are land of the free, home of the brave, which means we believe that our choices are ours to make, that we can do what we want pretty much all the time. We have this very open and libertine view of, of freedom. But the reality is, no matter how free we are, no matter how free we think we are, all of us are victims of circumstances. All of us have circumstances, have context around us, some facts that are in place that we all just have to deal with. Now, some of the circumstances around us we can control, right? You can control to some degree who you date or marry. You have, I, I hope you have a say in that, right? You can control what career path you go down to, to some degree, right? You, you could say, I want to study this, or I want to go after this, or I want to get this kind of job. You have some say there. You can control whether you're going to exercise today or not. Like the, some of the, the, the circumstances and the, the situation you find yourself in, in part you have a bit of say over. And then there are things, there are circumstances that you can't control. Even in something like dating, you don't have all the control there, right? There's like another person involved and they have some say about whether you get to date them or not, right? And even within that, um, the pool from which you are drawing from to date people, that's not exactly under your control. You have no control over who you happen to meet or who's at work or who's on your kickball team or who's on the, on the app that you're using. Like, you don't have control. So, so you may con- have some control over where you place the hook for the fish, but you don't have control about which fish are in the pond, right? Or, or in other circumstances, we don't have control... Um, we, have, we have circumstances around us that we don't have control of, like at, at work. Like you may want a raise, but you may not get a raise. And you may want things to go well for your company, but things may not go well for your company. And, and, it, and it might not be within your control. You might, have, you might just be, in a sense, a victim of circumstances. And so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, the idea that we are a victim of circumstances, and talk about specifically... Does God show up in any of that stuff? Like, where is God in the midst of the uncertainty of the day-to-day? So, like, when you pray, when you're going to the store and you pray for a, a good parking spot and you get one, did God give you a good parking spot in that moment? Is that actually what happened? Of all the things in the world, did God look down at you in your moment and be like, you know what, she really needs that parking spot. I'm going I'm to grant it to her and move the car for you or whatever. Is that what happens? Or... Did you just kind of get lucky and there's like a good spot there? If you pray for financial blessing and you get a raise, did you get a raise because God heard your prayer and blessed you financially? Or did you get a raise because things were going well in the company and it was kind of your turn and, thing, and you had been working hard and it all kind of worked out? Like all of these things that happen, the things that we think are coincidence or not, like where is God in the midst of all of that stuff? Is he there at all? Is it helpful to believe that he's there? Like, what is, what is going on? So we're going to look at the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And uh, it's a really fascinating book. It's a four-chapter uh, story set in about 1000 B.C., uh, r- roughly. And 
if you ever read a book of the Bible and, and it feels like, oh, this could be a movie, you could imagine it playing out like a movie, that is the book of Ruth. There's a lot of drama and sort of intrigue to it. Um, it it's, it's cool to see how it unfolds. And, it, and it, it's kind of the story told in, in four, four acts, I guess you could say. And so I, I want to jump into it. Um, we're going to do one chapter a week for, for four weeks and, and really dig into this really cool, um, profound story. And I, and I want you to see really how God is at work. He's not the central character in the story. It doesn't appear to be, but how God works behind the scenes in, in people's lives. So we're going to start with Ruth chapter one. We're going to read the whole the whole chapter today. So we're going to jump into it. We'll, we'll move through it here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. All right, let me give you some context. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. This is one of the ways we're able to add uh, a, a bit of a, a to, to date this and get the time of when this story takes place. Um, the day of the judges, the judges were leaders over Israel who rose up to lead Israel because there, there was no official point leader in Israel. The idea was that Israel was going to be a people led by God himself and God would direct them. And then, uh, so, so they didn't need like a prime minister or a president or a king or something like that. Uh, and so you, you see this period from the Exodus, which happens in around 1440 BC. The Exodus happens for 40 years. They wander in the desert out of Egypt. They invade Canaanite land and they, they take over like the, the promised land in about four, 1404 BC with Joshua. And then following Joshua from about 1404 BC till they get a king around 1100 BC with Saul, uh, in that period of time is called the time period of the judges. It's where you have. Um, where, where you see the Israelites interacting with their neighbors. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. You've got people like Samson that show up in there, you, Deborah, uh, different, different leaders in this period of the judges is what it's called. And this is, so this is the time of, of when this happens with Ruth. This is the period of the judges. There's no king yet in Israel. And so um, you'd think that would go okay. Like if we're, if we're like a leaderless bunch, uh, as, a, as a community, as a nation, if we have no leaders, uh, which some might argue we have no leaders today even in the country. But if we're, as a nation, we have no one at least who has the title of leader or president or king or whatever, um, it could go fine, right? It, it could be fine. Unless everybody decides to be an idiot, in which case you've got no, like, tiebreakers. And, and the way the period of the Judges was described in the book of Judges, which is right here next to the book of Ruth, Judges 21, 25, this is the way it described the times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's actually a, a, a bit of a condemning statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everybody walks around and goes, and tell me if this sounds familiar, everyone sort of walks around and goes, well, that's not your truth, that's my truth. Well, you do that, you do you, I'm going to do me, I'm going to decide what's right. And every, it, so you have millions of, everybody's their own little king. Everybody gets to decide what's right for them, and what, well, that might be right for you, it's not right for me, that kind of thing. And they, and they, and they do that. And predictably, that actually doesn't go well for a society. Um, it didn't go well back then. It, it probably is not going to go very well for us now. Uh, that's, that's the context. Um, and so uh, what we also find out from verse 1 is, is the period of the judges and that there's a famine in the land. And there's this guy who um, decides to leave Israel 
because of the famine. There's no food there, and he's taking his family with him. He's taking his wife and his two sons with him, and they're going to cross a border, and they're going to go to another country to try to get food. Here's the deal. We, we have all these thoughts modern day about immigrants and illegal border crossings and all. Here's the reality. If things are terrible where you live and you love your family, you will go anywhere to make it right. You will go to where the food is. You will go to where there's no war. You, will do, you, do, you would do it. I would do it. We would go to take care of our family to somewhere where there, in this case, where there is food. This is what um, this guy does. His name is Elimelech. Is, is the guy. He leaves with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. Um, and you think, because the story starts with um, there was a famine in the land and, and a man set out with his, with his wife and, and sons to, to a, a foreign country. You'd think this is a story about him, but it's not. He's going to die in the next verse. So if... if if, they, if, if someone says we're going to do a play about the book of Ruth and you get the part of Elimelech, I just want you to know you did not get a good part. It's not going to go well for you. You're in it for like a minute and then it's over. Uh, so this is what happens. He uh, takes his family out. Um, and, and so you, you, you find out a little bit of their story. Let me, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Sound familiar? You heard of Bethlehem? They're from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, not the desert in Utah, but a different one, and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, we've introduced a lot of characters and killed half of them off in the first three verses. It's a great start. Um, Naomi uh, is going to be the central character of this book. Um, even though the book's named Ruth, although Ruth kind of shows up as the hero eventually. But Naomi, it's kind of be centered around Naomi here for a while. Naomi and her husband, Limelech, they go, they cross the border in Moab. They have two sons, Mala and Chilean. Now, names mean things, okay? Uh, Naomi's name means pleasant. It's a nice name. Uh, her sons, they, they're there for 10 years. Their sons marry women to him, to Orpah which I always get confused with Oprah because it's so close and I just want it to be Oprah, but it's not. It's Orpah and Ruth, who's going to be the star of the show here in a little bit. But he, uh, they, Malon and Chilean marry them and then Malon and Chilean die. This is something we could have seen coming because Malon and Chilean, what their names mean are sick and dying. So I, it's, it's, it's like what? Like... People, I guess if they're born like during a famine or whatever, it's like we could have seen this one coming. Like, and, and then, you know, when you, when you meet someone and they're dating or whatever, when you date Orpa or whatever, you're like, hey, my name's Malon. It means sick and, you know, it's dying. Like it's not a good scene, but there, there it is. Um, so who saw that coming? So they, they cross over into uh, another, another country and they take wives from amongst the Moabites. Now, for Jews, this is a significant thing. You're not supposed to marry outside of your people your ethnic group, uh, your, your religion, your faith, your, all, your heritage. You're not supposed to marry outside of that. So that's what they do. They cross the border and they end up marrying um, Moabite women who are, who are from a different culture, different ethnic background, different religious beliefs. Um, 
we think that's okay in our modern world. Oh yeah, everybody should be free to marry and it was probably true love and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know about all that. In the ancient world, um, your, your identity matters there and they have married outside of, of their tribe. Now Elimelech, we could say he was a victim of circumstances, right? We could say, um, look, there's a famine. He didn't want to leave his country. It wasn't his fault, but he had to go. Um, Another way of looking at that is, well, he could have stayed in Israel, in Bethlehem, and prayed and, and trusted God to show up and do something and provide for his family in hard circumstances, because not everybody moved away, but he chose not to do that. And, and so he takes matter into his own hands. He's like, I'm not going to trust God and stay here in Bethlehem. I'm going to leave and go find food somewhere else. And, and what ends up happening, his, his sons marry non-Israelite women, uh, and he ends up dying and they die. So he moved with the hopes of surviving the famine, and I guess they survived the famine, but everybody dies anyway. So it doesn't actually work out incredibly well, this, this move away from God. And so my question is, as I read this, and maybe you have this question too, if we're thinking about God's interaction with the world, does God cause them to die? Did God take Elimelech's life because he wasn't faithful or something? Did God punish Naomi because her sons married non-Israelite women or something like that? Uh, what, what, what's, what's going on there? Um, we don't know. Uh, I, I'm, we're not sure. We're not sure where God's hand is in all of this. We don't know if he's causing things or if he's merely allowing things or if he's not interested in this at all. Like it's, it's, it's a little hard to tell. But Naomi has some thoughts on um, where God is at work in this. And she decides to go back and return and, and move back to Israel with her, now her daughters-in-law. The three of them now, none of them have husbands. Uh, she decides to move back. Verse 6, let's pick it up there. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi's a widow. Um, in the ancient world, this is a very bad situation to be in. You need men to provide for you um, and in, in a patriarchal sort of structured society. And so she doesn't have that. That's bad. In, in that situation, you would probably have your sons or son-in-laws to provide for you. She doesn't have that either. So you've got three widow women, um, and it's not good for them. Now, there are some laws. The Israelites have laws about how you're to care for widows. Um, it's something that, you know, and you see some evidence that God is near to people who are in that situation. And so there's, there's definitely a heart for that. And so she thinks and she hears that the Lord has visited the people back in Israel, back in her home. Visit, when the Lord visits, it's not always great. Let's be honest. In the Old Testament, when it says the Lord visits people, sometimes it goes very badly because they're messing up and he's bringing punishment or discipline. But sometimes it's blessing, and in this case, it's blessing. The Lord has visited his people, Israel, and he's bringing back the harvest, that kind of thing, and they're getting food, and things are going better. And so Naomi thinks, I'm just, it's bad no matter what. I'm just going to go back to my home, and she wants to bring her daughters-in-law with them. So she says, hey, come with me. And so they set out on the road, verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Um, verse, verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. 
Somewhere on the road back to Israel, Naomi has a change of heart. And she says, uh, y'all don't want to come with me. And she probably knows. Naomi herself was an immigrant. She moved to Moab. She's not Moabite. And she knows how hard it is to assimilate into that culture and to be with those people. And now she's taking her Moabite daughter-in-laws back to Israel. And she's probably thinking, this didn't go well for me. It's not going to go well for them. And she turns to them and says, go back. Just turn around, go back to Moabite, go be with your families, live there. This is going to be a better better situation for you. She doesn't want them to go through probably what, what she had to go through. All right, uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? So they have this conversation. A lot of the book of Ruth is conversation. Turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become your husbands? That's a, it's a weird idea to our culture, right? They're like, well, do you got any more in there that we, the first... Maybe don't name them sick and dying. <laughs> like, do you have a kid named tuberculosis or something on the way that you could turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Also, that's weird. Uh, would you, right? I would just call it, it's, it's, it's a different world. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly Listen to this, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She is insistent that they leave. And what you'll see here is that Orpah, when it says they kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, Orpah has decided to take that offer. Okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back. And a lot of uh, people have written over the years and commentators, they write about this decision. Orpah goes back, Ruth stays. And, you know, it would be an easy preacher thing for me to be like, are you Orpah or Ruth today? If the book's named Ruth, you probably want to be Ruth. That's probably like the one you want to pick. We don't even need to go into all that. All you need to know is that Orpah makes the decision, yeah, I'm probably better off going back with my people um, and, 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 um, and, and makes that call and Ruth decides to stay. Um, notice, though, where Naomi lays, lays the blame for her situation. We're talking about victim of circumstance and where's God at work. She says, these things happen because the Lord's hand is against me. This is, this is how she frames all of this. Um, she says, God is at work here and it's not in my favor. That's not how all of us would frame this, right? Modern day, we might just say, oh, it's bad luck. We just had bad luck. We would say it's luck. We might say it's fate. Oh, fate has happened and that's the way you're going. And in the ancient world, they might have looked at this, some groups that are maybe polytheists with, you know, a, a, a typical Roman citizen or somebody like that or in the different countries, they might go, the gods are against me. Or a monotheist like Naomi would say, the Lord is against me. So they, they would ascribe the situation to agency outside of them and say, God is at work doing this. And then in the modern day, we might not do that. We might look at evolutionary things or things like that and go, uh, there's no God, so it must just be bad luck or something like that. Naomi says the Lord's hand is against her. And what I'm wondering right now is, as, as, I, as I read it, is she right? Is God testing her? Is he, is he like putting her through the ringer on purpose? Or is it just that sometimes life is really hard? Did God cause the things that happened to Naomi? Or did God just allow the things that happened to Naomi? 
And I guess maybe the better question when you're in these situations is this. Does it even matter? Like, if I'm sitting with Naomi in that moment, now is not the time to figure out, well, God's punishing you. Or, no, no, God wouldn't do that. No, like, she's, she's in a bad spot. She is bitter. And f- for us, um, I think there's something we can learn in that. Because there's a lot of suffering in life. There's a whole lot of pain. And sometimes, in the midst of our pain, we blame God. You know, the Lord is doing this to me. God is doing this. God, you know, I wanted to be married and you took this away. I wanted to have this child and you took that away. Like, we go through some dark stuff. And we, and we blame God. Now, I hope that we don't stay in that place of blaming God forever. I hope we can see that sometimes we're in a season. We're in a valley. Um, and, and when we're in a season or we're in that valley, it feels dark and there's no hope of even the sun coming out. I think that's where, I think that's where Naomi is. Is it her fault that she's blaming God in this? Like, I don't know. It's kind of like, who cares? You're in it right now and it's dark. And maybe as Naomi's friend or as a friend of someone who's going through it, maybe the best thing you can offer is just some presence to just show up. And just sit there and be like, yeah, it's hard. I'm sorry. Um, this is actually uh, what Ruth herself offers in this situation. Ruth offers some presence. Look at, uh, look at verse 15. And she said, see, this is Naomi talking to Ruth. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this is like the quote from the book. Listen to this. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth's an unlikely hero in this story. But she comes back to Naomi with really intense and strong commitment. No, I'm not going to go back. I'm, I'm with you in this. I made a commitment to this family, and I'm staying here. Now, her words are pretty words. Where you go, I will go. Your, you know, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Uh, honestly, some people read those words in, in weddings. because It sounds nice, right? But, but think about what it costs Ruth to do this. She is going to be a foreigner in a foreign land. These are not her people. This is not her God. This is not the way she was raised. This is all going to be very different to her. And she's willingly saying, I will commit to this. I, I will worship God. And she, the Lord, you know, she says this. I will worship God. I, I, will, I, will, I will stick with you in this. She shows that strong commitment. And when Naomi sees that, she kind of shuts up, right? She's just like, okay, I can't. Like, I can't. Obviously, you're going to do what you do. I can't stop it. It's, it's powerful. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And, and the women said, is this Naomi? So she causes a stir when she gets there. 
and she's almost unrecognizable, probably because she's been gone 10 years, but it's also been a pretty hard 10 years, you know? And they see her, and they're like, ooh, ooh, uh, is that you, Naomi? I don't remember you. You look a little different. And she's already said she's bitter, right? She's already, like, she's had 10 hard living years. Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I, and I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She chooses the name Mara instead of Naomi, and the, the name Mara means bitter. So she went from being pleasant to bitter. And she says, I went away full, but I came back empty. Now I'm aware there's a lot of um, female dynamics in this story, and I'm a dude up here, right? But even I'm moved when I read this. Like, I got a little choked up reading it as I was preparing for this. I didn't like gush. I don't, I don't do that. I mean, it was not a movie. I mean, it's just, that's, uh, but I would, for me, I got, I welled is what my wife said. She's like, you well. So I welled. Because, um, gosh, how much is in that statement? I went away full and I came back empty. She went away with a husband and sons and the hope of grandkids and all of that. And she comes back her and a daughter-in-law, and, and, and nothing there. And I know not every woman in this room wants to have kids or grandkids. I understand that. But a lot of people do. And the sense of loss is so profound that she would describe it as empty. It's gone. It's, it, there's an emptiness there. I had a I had an experience of this a, a few weeks ago. I, I, I did a funeral here. Um, There's a young man named Ty who used to sit in that back corner and very much kept to himself. Uh, but a, a pretty brilliant guy, actually. Uh, was a, he was a rapper and a DJ and an artist, really crazy good artist. And um, he's 28 years old, and he died on September 11th of um, just like an asthmatic attack. And he died... And uh, I spent some time with his mother in preparation for the funeral. His mother's name is Sammy. And uh, it was really interesting to hear her story. And um, Sammy, earlier this year, buried her father and then her brother and now her son all in, all in this year. And, um, and I was asking her about that. And she said, yeah, this, when it's your son, it just hits different. And... Um, you know, I was listening to her stories about, about Ty, and I, I just said to her, because you, you can't, there's no, there's no like, oh, the Lord has a plan, like, mm, that's in the time. I just said, I am so sorry this has happened. Nobody should have to bury a child. And she said, and I will never forget this, she said, yeah, this has been a hard year. And she talked about her, her, her father and her brother and now her son. And she said, um, my heart is empty, but my, st- my soul is full. And she's a person of faith and a person of strong faith. And she talked to me about God's work in Ty's life and stories all the way back to his childhood. And she had faith that 
she'll see, she'll see her son again in eternity. Now, Naomi's not there yet as a mom. She's, she's low. And some of you have been there. Things like infertility are really common. I hear lots of stories about it. And there's people who long for a child and they, they don't have one. Or they have a child and they lose, lose their child. There's, there's so much pain. And the sorrow is real. And it needs to be acknowledged and, and maybe you're in that season, and maybe that season is, I just got to sit in the darkness for a little bit. And maybe somebody will sit with me, and we're just going to be here in the valley, and that's okay. And maybe you're in a space to blame God for where you're at, and that's okay too. But there is hope. And it, in, even in chapter one, the chapter begins with famine and death, and it ends with this, verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they leave and there's famine, they return and there's, there's a harvest and there, there's, there's good things coming. It's like a little clue that there's, there's hope, there's life, there's some rebirth. The chapter opens with death but ends with hope and you'll see how this un, unfolds in the next couple of chapters. Let me just give you two main points out of this and then we're, we're done. Number one is this. God may be in the shadows, but he's always there. God may be in the shadows, but he's always there. Our tendency is to believe that when things are dark and bad, um, God's not there. But I would actually argue that's when God is the closest. We tend to feel like we're closest in worship or in the good moments and pleasure. But the reality is that's too much trusting God in our feelings. God may be most with us when it goes dark or when we think he's going silent. Um, God shows up. God does not appear a bunch in this story. At this point, we don't know who caused what or whatever. What we do know is that Naomi blames God. So he's a little bit, it seems like he's showing up like the villain in the story. Um, and we don't see his hand much. And we have those questions. Does God cause the famine? Did God take Elimelech's life? When suffering comes, I think we basically have three options that we all face. You go through pain and suffering and trials and you go, number one option is there is no God. There's no God. This is just random chance. It's bad luck. It hurts. It's awful. I'm going through this. And there is no God. There's no God working things out. Um, and I understand why people take that that decision. A lot of people are atheists because of pain, not because of intellectual, they've worked it out and there's no way to believe in a, in a creator. Or a, they, they go, no, I'm atheist or agnostic or something because this just hurts too much. It hurts too much to believe in a God. I would rather just go, life sucks and that's just it. And there's nothing better. There's no hope. There's no fairy in the sky. There's, no, there's nothing out there. And so we say, when suffering comes, we say there is no God. And I'm, and I'm sympathetic to that. I, I understand. Secondly, we might say, well, God is real. There is a God. He's just not involved. So when I go through pain, I go suffering, God has just let it go. He, he, he wound the clock up and he's letting it run in the universe. He's not interfering with me. So God is not, you know, if anything, God has to deal with like, I don't know, Putin and a war and things like that. That's what God's concerned about right now. My issues over here in Richmond are not on God's radar. So, 
We, a lot of people believe that. A lot of, some of the founding fathers of America had that kind of a deist approach where it's like God, there is a God, he is real, but he's not all that involved. And, and that's a little comforting, right? That, that if bad things happen, it's like, well, God didn't make that happen to you. He's just letting it ride. He just put it all on red and he's just letting that sucker ride and we're gonna see what happens with your life. And I suppose that's a little bit comforting. Okay, ultimately there's something out there that makes greater purpose and meaning of the world, but he's not like super involved in like the day to day. But I think there's a third option here, that God is real and he's involved, even when we can't see him. That God is actually in the circumstances, even the ones that feel horrible. Now, this isn't to say God caused your car accident or God, like, no. But I'm saying he, he's at work in the things that happen. Some things, are, some things uh, are discipline from the Lord. And some things are, we're real stupid and we do stupid things. And we, you know, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? Like, some things in life are that. And God allows them. But God can work in them. This is the hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are calling according to his purpose. This is not a blank check from God. Everything is awesome. It's not that. It's not the Lego movie from God. What it is from God is all things work together for good. How many things? Well, all of them work together for good for who? Well, for those who are called according to his purpose. It, not for everybody, for those who are his disciples, who are following Jesus, who love God and are, and, and are pursuing him, God will work all things for good. It does not mean all things are good. It means all the crooked lines he can make straight. All the, the broken road. God can work that out and, and, and make something out of our pain. I believe that is true. And it's a reminder that even though we're in a valley, um, God is, is there. He may be hard to see, but he's, he's always there. And he's always there in, in Ruth, and you'll see this through, through the next couple chapters. And second thing I get from the story is no matter what has happened, you always have the option to return to God. You always have the option to come back. The Hebrew word for return actually shows up 12 times in that chapter. Now, we don't notice it because it gets translated as return. It gets translated as go back, take back, be brought back, those kind of things. But it shows up over and over. It's almost a central theme in there. Return, come back, take it back, be brought back, turn away from the direction you were going and go, and, and go back. Um, and oftentimes, the idea of return in the scripture is really referring to conversion or spiritual transformation. It's not just a, a change of a path that you're walking on, but it's like a, a deeper sort of spiritual change. I was going on a bad road spiritually and I have turned back um, and, and have come back. Um, and you see that in this story. After many years, they decide to return. And God is going to meet Naomi and Ruth there and you'll see how in weeks to come. But it's a reminder to me that there's always an opportunity there's always an opportunity to return. Look, some people really struggle to believe in God. That may be you right now. You're like, I just don't know if I'm in on this. And it's hard. And a lot of times you'll talk to people, and I've seen this in people who as they get older, they sort of go, like you say, you talk about God or whatever, and they sort of go like, man, I, I can't at this point. Like maybe when I was younger I could have gotten into that, but I, it's, 
It's, you know, one of those like, it's too late for me, kids. You guys go on ahead. Leave me here to die. You know, that kind of vibe you get sometimes from people. Man, that's not true. It's never too late to turn. It's never too late to return to God and, and come back. You, you may have gone far away. And you may have gone through some really hard stuff. But no matter how far you've wandered, you can always return to God. He is waiting for you. Ernest Hemingway tells a story in a book called The Capital of the World, a story called The Capital of the World. And he tells a story about, uh, that's set in Madrid, Spain, about a young boy named Paco. And Paco, as a boy, he um, has an argument with his father in a fight, and they don't, he doesn't tell you what it's about. But Paco storms out of the house and leaves. And the father, Papa, he goes to look for Paco and tries to find him. And he's looking all over in the streets, and he's going house to house. And he realizes, I'm never going to find my son if I'm just going door to door. And he tries to come up with a way to expand his search to find his son who's, who's, you know, he had this fight with. And so he takes out an ad in the paper, and, it's, and the ad says this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. And so Papa goes to the Hotel Montana at, at noon on Tuesday, wondering if his son Paco will show up, and he's anxious. And as he walks into the lobby, he sees 800 men named Paco who are waiting to meet their papa and hear the words that all is forgiven. And I don't know all of why Hemingway told that story, but I think there's something profound there. And for those of us, myself included, who have more than a few dad issues, I would love to have had that with my dad. Some sort of forgiveness, some sort of moment. But, I'm, but I didn't get that before he died. But I trust that there's a heavenly father who knows me, who loves me, and who, who longs for me to return. And he says, Chris, all is forgiven. And he, and he wants me to be part of the family. But he's waiting for me to show up and return to him. Here's my question. Where do you need to return to God today? Where do you need to return because no matter how far you've wandered, there's always an opportunity to come back. Maybe it's to be involved in the church. Maybe it's to be involved with the community of faith. Maybe it's to pray. Maybe it's to get baptized if you haven't done that. Um, where do you need to return? Where have you been like, I'm wandering on this road far away. I just want you to know the option is always there to, to come back. If you find yourself in the foreign country, um, you can return. And God is there and he's waiting for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for Ruth and Naomi and, and what they went through. And uh, God, I'm excited to see how it kind of unfolds over the four chapters um, and see your hand at work. God, we are all in circumstances, some of which are in our, feel like they're in our control, but many of which are not. God, may we um, handle the hands that were dealt to us. And uh, may we train our eyes to see how you work things for the good in the midst of even the hard and, and difficult stuff. Um, thank you, Lord, um, for fun and for pleasure and for joy, but also for the pain that helps us to grow and become who you're calling us to be. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.